You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today we're going to be hearing from Daniel Sloss in just a second. Uh, First, I just want to take a second to remind you that you can get tickets now for all of my tour dates uh, of the show of which Chortle said maybe something about all this podcasting has rubbed off, which... uh, it's high praise indeed. Um, that tour, uh, the show is called An Hour, and I'm, I'm bloody proud of it, man. It's my best show. I'm really excited about it. And it's coming to places including, but not limited to, Birmingham, Nottingham, Kingston, Crawley, Manchester, Bristol, Southend, Canterbury, Aldershot, Hamel Hempstead, Milton Keynes, Bath, Norwich, Leicester, Corby, Wolverhampton, the Soho Theatre in London, Uh, Sutton and the secret Welsh festival that we never name so if you would like information about that tour you can go to comedianscomedian.com where you can also find out about the run of Soho theatre shows involving Izzy Sutty, Dave Gorman and Romesh Ranganathan all coming up in the new year. This is the fabulous Daniel Sloss. Please welcome my guest Mr Daniel Sloss. Daniel has, uh, is drinking some red wine yes. because he has class. Yes, um, however, and a serious addiction problem. Yeah. Uh, for those of you uh, unfamiliar, maybe one or two of you in the room, or perhaps one or two of you listening at home will be unfamiliar with Daniel's work. Daniel, sum yourself up in one short paragraph, taking into account your entire history. What do you, what do, you do on stage? What, what can we expect from a Daniel's Lost show? Uh, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I know, it's an impossible question, yeah. but I like seeing people squirm. It's just uh, me being a prick and justifying it. It sort of is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just a really, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of my favourite comics is uh, Bill Burr. He's an absolute master of the fucking thing, which is basically he'll say something that, of course, you fundamentally disagree with, but then just through the way fucking comedy works, he will then spend the next five minutes bringing you over into the side. And even though, obviously, his point is wrong he's able to justify it in this silly way and in comedy you just go that's fucking funny because you've made this awful thing sound vo- not only viable but i also agree with you <laughs> yeah okay um and that's what I, I really enjoy uh that sort of stuff just making the audience just sort of think for a bit making them think making them think man that's lofty that's yes. a lofty uh, pursuit I think it's very important to... Is it, is it more important that they're laughing or thinking? Uh, well, b- both, obviously. you got to make sure that you get laughs in, but I also can't... I mean, there's some great comics that, you know, will just make you laugh for an hour and 20 minutes and be fucking solid. Uh, you know, I always sort of say Lee Evans, when I was growing up, just made me cry, cry with laughter. And I watch it now and I still enjoy it, but now I'm more into the sort of, like, Amy Schumer or the a lot of American comics like Dave Chappelle and Louis C.K. and Tig Notaro, who do comedy that make you laugh, but at the same time, just sort of, you leave, not necessarily thinking anything different, but just impl- putting an idea in someone's head that they've laughed during, but when they leave, they suddenly go, oh, I, didn't nece- oh, I didn't think about that before, not necessarily converting them to the way that you think, but just making them think about something that they might not have thought of before. Okay, okay. I think is important. Yeah, so when you, when we, I mean, I saw your show uh, earlier this month, mm. and your current show is called Dark. Yes. Um, give us the elevator pitch for your current show, in the context of what you just said. Uh, the, I mean, I could literally just give you what all five jokes are about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, tampons, uh, relationships, drugs, uh, sex, and uh, death. Okay. 
And what would you like us to think about those things? Is it as simple as taking a line? Like, take the tampons bit, for example. Talk us through the line of thinking in that bit of material. Well, that was uh, a bit where, obviously, being a guy, uh, it's not something I'd ever thought about with uh, certain periods or giving a shit anything about. Because if nothing directly affects me, why would I care? That's how things work. Um, and one of my best friends in the whole wide world, uh, Jean, uh, is a girl we've been best friends for about five years now. And uh, living together and stuff, obviously living with a girl. We were talking about stuff and talking about tampons and stuff. And she was like, it's just so fucking expensive. And I'm like, well, we should, like, boo fucking who? And then she was like, no, not really boo fucking who. Like, it's bullshit. And I was like, is it? I'm like, go fuck it. And then she explained it to me with the whole fucking... And I was just like, oh, holy fucking shit. Like... I mean, and so the whole bit is like how, as a nation, we have free health care. Cancer treatment's free. Cancer, which you cause yourself, is free. Like, that treatment's all free. But yet something that just fucking happens <laughs> through no choice uh, because fucking Eve ate an apple two and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> like, and it, half the world now has to suffer just because some pedophiles wrote it in a book a while ago. <laughs> and we all just went, sure, yeah. Like, every other... Uh, and I'd never thought of it before, and... I suddenly went, oh, that is fucking bullshit. I, I'd like to uh, sort of talk about that because... And also with the tampon bit, I really en- that re- enjoy that routine because uh, I th- I think it's in a very pretentious way. Uh, I think it's important uh, to hear it from a man because there's always this fucking bullshit that female comics always talk about periods, and they absolutely don't. And this year, uh, there's a lot of, like Tiff Stevenson, Bridget Christie are talking about periods again, sort of reclaiming the joke. So- Sophie Hagen wrote an amazing blog about it. And it is important to hear it from that side of thing, but they're all related to it. So you can get all the fucking men in this and all the men very activists being like, yeah, they're just fucking complaining. But if you hear it from uh, me where it sort of comes up out of the blue, you can sort of trick people into thinking about it and not thinking it's a lecture. Because there's nothing, I don't gain any advantage if tampons are free. It doesn't do anything for me. But I still disagree uh, with the fact that they aren't free. So, yeah, I, I thank you. I... Uh... <laughs> I don't know if this makes sense or it's just news being really pretentious and wanky, being like, women should be protected. That's not what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I'm just trying to say is, uh, yeah, I, I, in the past couple of years, I've had moments where I used to just, I hate my early comedy. I fucking hate it. Okay. Uh, with every, I can't watch it. It annoys me. Uh, and it's because it was just, very, it was porridge comedy. I was just, I, people were laughing. It was good jokes, but there was no substance. Well, what do you uh, mean to, porridge comedy? I think of porridge as being a really good food with a low glycemic index. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I mean. It'll get you through it. It does the job. Like, there is comedy. Where you go porridge comedy. You go, you laugh, and it fills you up. But there's, but it's, you know, it's not delicious. It's not something that you're like, okay, oh, Nobody okay. goes, oh, I can't wait for some fucking porridge. Okay. <laughs> but people were saying that about your comedy in the early years. Because I, for the benefit of people listening at home who can't see his unbelievable skin, uh, Daniel Sloss is very, very young. You're, how young are you? How I'm old 24. are you? 24. You're 24 years old, and you've been doing comedy since you were... Uh, me and my dad argue about this. He says 16, I say 17. Why do you argue about it? Uh, I did a gig when I was 16, but if you ask any of the 20 people in that audience, what I did was not comedy. So... <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, uh... That's interesting. Most comics argue for having started earlier rather than later. Yeah. Like people like to go, oh, I've been doing this since I was 12. But it was and like... You, it because was... you're so close to that age still, you're like, no, no, I was definitely a grown-up. It was, it was like three weeks before my 17th birthday as well, so it's on a technicality. I came okay. my first gig as at the Stand Comedy Club because it was a real fucking comedy club that's become my home since then. So that's why I really go... That was the moment where I was on stage with a microphone in front of a full audience making them laugh and just that little bit in the back of my head went oh I'm being a comedian yeah 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 okay oh I'm doing it what the fuck and it wasn't good I mean uh, it was fine the audience laughed but uh, since then um, I I was into a lot of British comedy when I was younger and then a couple of years ago I got more into sort of American comedy watching that stuff and I really enjoyed the comics that were saying sort of stuff and raising these valid points and then little things that would happen like I got a tweet uh, last year from just uh, like some 16 year old kid saying that I was I was the reason that he had the courage to come out to his parents and I'd never that blew my fucking mind because I'm like all I do is go on stage and tell dick jokes and act like a cunt but and I just I really think what I was I really thought what I was doing was really unimportant but then just that moment that clue was a huge I didn't realise how big a moment that was in his life so the fact that he got to do that I was like 
oh, that's a fucking nice feeling. Like if I can, yeah. that's what I want to do. So that's more kind of, of. The, you growing a social conscience in your comedy? Uh, not necessarily. Yeah, maybe a bit of a social conscience, but maybe just sort of realizing that, uh, I mean, my uncle, who's a minister, uh, said something to me and Kai Humphreys when we were out fucking getting steaming drunk one night, which was, he was like, you're the only, Sonic comedians are the only public speakers that people really listen to. Like his wife's a teacher, none of the, like half the students all listen to her. He's a minister. He's like, nobody's, people listen to what I'm saying, but they're also hearing what they want to hear themselves. They're not asking for my opinion. They're not, they don't care really what I think a lot of the time. Some of them do. Politician, nobody gives a shit. Any sort of public speaker is just doing it because you feel that you have to listen. Whereas with stand-up comedy, people are going out of their way and are buying tickets to watch this fucking thing and you really are allowed to talk about what. Because so, so much of it's about attitude. Yeah. They want to know what you think they about it. They want to know what you fucking think. And even if they disagree with it, they still like listen to it because I mean I've got jokes I've got so many atheist jokes in my thing but I would say at least 30% of my audience are religious people who know I'm just being a dick for the sake of being a dick and why do they why would they give a fuck why I think I'm 24 I know nothing is that do you think do you see a bit of a contradiction in, in, in that in terms of you, it feels like you're saying both things at the same time like these people are why would they care what I think mm. and then at the same time you're going oh, people really care passionately what no no I, I stand by it I don't understand why people care what I think but I have also think you have to take that as a like this kid that say it's happened loads of other times with other sort of situations where young audience members have sort of said that uh you know they've stuff i've said has really made them think made them feel more confident and more comfortable yeah. hearing a like-minded thought that they didn't think was out there really get through and i'm not saying i still don't understand why they care or and why it affects them that way but i kind of feel that i have to take that responsibility a little yes. bit seriously yes. and don't get me wrong like I mean you've seen my show there's about two jokes in it which are like hey let's really think about shit and then the rest of it's ah, dick jokes like it's still you are very it's interesting you're very fond of saying that on stage and you've mentioned it already four or five times in the last ten minutes but you you do like to remind us that ultimately you're just fucking about you're just an idiot you like you you protest on stage a lot that hey don't listen to me I'm just a prick I'm just being a prick for the sake yeah. of it you say that a lot and I wonder why you how does it serve you to reinforce that idea about yourself? Uh, just for two reasons. Just to remind the very small percentage of audiences that might take it seriously, that might not be able to look at a joke that concerns something in there, like, and not take it seriously, not just look at it just as the joke of what it is. And also uh, just to remind myself... I don't want to fucking. I've been an arrogant prick in my lifetime, and I never want to be that again. Like it's there's a the fucking great story about like Julius Caesar apparently had a guy follow him around Rome whenever he was walking through the streets, and everyone was shouting his name. He hired a guy to just walk behind him, being like, "You're only human. You're still a man. You're only human. You're still a man." Just to and keep. So in so the I same like way, you've to, you've hired Kai Humphreys. Yeah, so. to just remind me. <laughs> all of my friends and all my family just consistently remind me that I'm a prick. Uh, but obviously, the thing about the Caesar story is obviously he then really fucked up. So clearly, that guy missed his job one day. Yeah, <laughs> just right. got yeah, too okay. drunk one night, and then the next day, Caesar was like, "I'm gonna run this shit." <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about... You mentioned before um, stuff that you regret, or material that you regret, the porridge comedy mm. before. What was it that you were doing on stage then, and why? Why did it become porridge comedy? It might be, th- it might be observations that now seem obvious, or stuff you weren't proud of saying, but why were you saying that at the time? What was it? Well, just it's not even necessarily what I was saying, it's just what I wasn't saying. Like, I mean, we, the thing about this generation as well is, like, a lot of my jokes... Uh, occasionally get sort of turned into internet memes or people use them. I mean, perfect example is you look at, if you've ever seen Jim Jeffries' gun control bit. Yes. It's one of those routines that went viral and rightfully so because the man just demolished an entire argument in 20 minutes, one of the funniest, most clever, challenging ways, but while keeping every person who disagreed with them still very yes. firmly on I've the seen, side. I've seen your routines a couple of times on imgur.com where yeah. people, or Tumblr or Reddit, when people have kind of cut them out and printed the text on or yeah. turned them into a GIF set. So, so there's, yeah, so exactly. So the, the, these or things GIF are... GIF set, if you're weird. Yeah, it's definitely GIF. Uh, <laughs> but, it, but so that stuff's always around. It's, I, I get reminded of all the time. It's not like I can be like, oh, I died on my arse five years ago. What evidence do you have? Nothing. But whereas now it's like, oh, there's that YouTube video of you. Like, okay, so you're under more scrutiny. I, no, not even from other people. I think from myself because I can watch it back because uh, I can sort of 
like I don't get to look back with nostalgia because what nostalgia is is forgetting all the terrible bits and remembering only the good bits. But when you've got a literal video document of yes. what I was saying, I'm just like I can't pretend. Can you that give us an example of something you said back then that makes you cringe now? Oh, just not even. I wasn't saying it. I mean, I used to have a bit about uh, fat people. I used to have this whole fucking routine. Uh, just and it was a very sort of fat shaming fucking bit. I mean, it was, fu- it was funny, but it. Just, but then, since then, I've completely changed my attitude on it. I've met mm. fucking people who really made me change my mind and realise what I was saying was just being cunty for the sake of being cunty. Like, there was nothing clever about it. It wasn't challenging. It was just easy, low-hanging fruit comedy. And I really regret that stuff. Mm. And there's a permanent record of it. I would hate for, you know, these kids that sit there and say that they get confidence from my stuff to then fucking, in the same boat, I would hate for a fucking 15-year-old kid who is struggling with weight issues to see, to be a fan of mine and then see me doing this stuff about fat mm. people and then think it's an attack on them like, and then feel bad. That's the opposite of wanting to. We're comedians. We want to make people laugh. Like, that's it. I do not want to make people sad. I don't mind making some people sad. Like, if you're religious, couldn't give a shit. Like, I'll happily... <laughs> your people have done enough. On, uh, on, that, on that subject, not, it's not solely on that subject, but are you ever... Do you ever... Are you ever concerned about, given that you're kind of growing up as a comedian and as a man mm. in the public eye, yeah. in a way in which you're like, I would have, I probably thought terrible shit things when I was 18, 19. No one was making gift sets of them. Yeah. So I, I'm really glad. I talked to, we talked to Mae Martin about this the other night. She started when she was very, very young, so was 13, 14. And I'm just wondering, are you concerned that in the same way that you would look back on that stuff now, are you concerned about things like, just off the top of my head, like you've got lots of atheism stuff, you've got lots of jokes where people who have a faith are the butt of the joke. Yeah. Do you ever kind of think, oh, maybe in 10 years or 15 years, you might find, it, you might find yourself having a similar, oh, actually, I was sort of being childish about that. I, I was probably hurting people's feelings. Yeah, probably. Uh, but two things, I was if my sort of logic with comedy is, if the 27-year-old version of me doesn't hate the 24-year-old version of me, I haven't improved as a comic. I want, to, I want my 30-year-old self to look at the stuff I'm doing right now and be like, oh, for fuck, what a pile of shit that was. That is a great attitude. And that because be- that means I fucking improve. I, w- I want to hate myself as much as I hate the 18-year-old myself because that, to me, shows progress. And that presumably gives you a lot of license at the moment. You don't, I mean, I, do you spend any time worrying about what you're going to say? Or nope. do you just go, I'm just going to face plant into it, go for it, because if, if me in the future doesn't like it, then that's, that's what I'm aiming for. Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm saying what's on my head. Like, I mean, it's the great George Carlin quote of, uh, I don't know if it's a quote, but it was basically his mantra that Louis C.K. talked about, uh, was that as a comedian, you have to tear a, you have to reveal yourself to the audience and then do that stuff and reveal who you are. And then once that's done, you have to tear off another layer and reveal that layer, and you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in yourself. So, I mean, you talk about the religious stuff, that's me lashing outwards as opposed to lashing inwards. Uh, and it is something that I do. But with, for me, with religion as well, the reason it's such a big part of my life is because I did grow up in a sort of slightly religious family, and it, uh, it does infuriate me. I mean, I'm fully aware that, you know, 80% of the religious people on this planet are beautiful, lovely people, my entire family, the people I meet at gigs... And that's what I mean when I'm always saying, like, I'm just being a dick. I want these people to understand that I know I'm attacking a part of religion that very few of you represent. Like, when I'm on stage being like, oh, you know, like all this, like, uh, I call it my promo-sexual material, my pro-gay material. Uh, I I, I don't think the room really appreciated the word promo-sexual. Promo-sexual. I just wanted to to repeat that. Deserved more. Good. Uh, (laughs) But that's what I said. I'm fully aware that when I'm talking about pro-gay rights and I'm bringing religion into it, most religious people are not homophobic. My uncle was one of the first ministers in Scotland to marry gay people. Like, it was just something that he really fucking pushed for. So I'm not talking about him when I'm talking about religion. I'm talking about this fucking thing. That's why I sort of back it up with when I am attacking religion by saying, just so you know, I know it's not you. I don't want people, when I say I hate Christians, to think I hate them all. It's just a... To make a joke succinct, you've really got shortened bits down. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I remember I, talking... I don't want to have to fucking remember, explain myself every couple of seconds. I remember talking to Milton Jones uh, on this podcast a couple of years ago about um, about his the need for a one-liner comic to try and bang out the material fast enough in such a... Bang out the material. In, in order to make the... As you say, just to make the writing succinct so that people see the picture fast enough to get the joke, he sometimes has to fall back on... 
uh, stereotypes yeah. in a way that actually he sort of knows that the people aren't really in as simple cat- in categories as simple as that. Yeah. So you have a similar issue, even though your stuff is much longer form. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to fucking take comedy literally. Like, I mean, it's one of the th- uh, things... I mean, you can take jokes out of context, uh, and, and people regularly do. Like, Frankie Boyle's always uh, attacked for saying this sort of... Like, always oh, offensive for the sake of being offensive. No, he's not. He's talking about offensive things, and he's putting them in a manner in just a way to pitch it, of just to make you fucking think. And yet people get shocked, and you're like, no, but good... You were meant. He's he's not trying to offend people for the sake of offending people. He's just talking about stuff uh, and pitching it in a way that some people do think. And it's one of those things people forget. Like you got to remember, a lot of time when a comedian is on stage talking about this stuff, they're not necessarily saying what they personally are thinking. Sometimes, I mean, I do it as well. I go in, I play a character at some points when I play the idiot. So in order to make people realise how stupid an argument is, instead of breaking that argument down and being like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, a better way to break down the argument is to be the idiot, to be like, I think this, and da 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 Because then people will be like, oh, what a fucking moron. Are you... Yeah, you can do that. Certainly, I understand you can, you can put yourself in the shoes of a cartoon stupid version of someone that disagrees with you. Mm. But then also, when you say you, you play the idiot, let's talk about that in terms of your persona. Mm. The, like, you're not entirely yourself on stage, are you? Or which one are you saying? Uh, well, I, oh, I, th- I think I'm sure, but I don't think anyone really is themselves on stage because no one is sort of on that much. But I think the key to being a good comic is being the closest version uh, to yourself. It was not gag, 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 gag. Because if, uh, when we're talking in conversation, I'm not going set up, punchline, set up, punchline, set up, punchline. You, you often are. I Sorry, mean, I really, I, I need people's and, approval and desperately. <laughs> but it's, you just sort of have to keep it. Uh, you, you just sort of have to keep it going in that way of uh, talking. I've completely forgotten my point, actually. No, we were talking about um, the, your persona. I'm sorry, I oh, threw yeah. you there by interrupting in order to score a point. Uh, my persona on stage is is, is very arrogant. Uh, I at the start as well. I really enjoyed that. I used you to go hard at the top, don't you? Yeah. Sorry, don't let me interrupt. Go, go on. No, no, no. I do. I, I really. Uh, enjoy that i've always had this thing about uh whenever i go on stage i never say hello to the audience what i do is always take the microphone out of the stand put the stand over there and leave sort of five seconds of silence and just in my head i don't know if it's true but i'm like that's me psychologically marking my territory yes. i'm just on stage being like this is where i own this is mine just yes. so you know i'm comfortable here i belong here Let's fucking do this shit and together. Do you know what? It sounds like a simple thing, but I think that's incredibly powerful because something... I mean, I've seen you at the Comedy Store in London maybe two years ago when you were 22, mm. and I thought, holy shit, he's commanding this room. Whereas most 22-year-olds I know... They would, rush to the microphone. They, well, they, they wouldn't think of doing it, and if they did, they'd be panicking their way through it. You have an incredible amount of presence. Like, if, yeah, it's... it's uh, and that, to me, came from not any of my own experience. It was uh, Tom Stade I wrote with uh, between... The, I still sort of write with Stade occasionally. He lives down the road... But I was always a massive fan of Stade because Stade is this comic who is naturally funny, just does these bits where that you look at Stade's bits, there's no there's no punch lines, there's no bits where you go, yes. that's funny because it's... It just wouldn't that, work written down, it it's him. It wouldn't work written down, which yeah. is exactly what I think a lot of good comedy is. I think the sound of a good comedian is if you see their show and then you try to repeat the jokes to your friends, your friends are just like... Sounds shit. Sound shit. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, no, no, but it's better when he does it. Um, and his big thing was happened. It was last year's show. Actually, he came to my preview, and I did what I always do, which is go and take the microphone, stand, put the stand there, and I go, "Hello." It's very what I've always said since I started comedy. Hello, how are we all? We're we doing well. My mum and dad make jokes about it all the time. I've said it every fucking gig I've ever had in my life, and stayed uh, last year. Just went, Dado, stop asking the audience how they are. And I was like, "Why?" And he goes, "Because you don't care." Yeah, right. <laughs> And not in a way, but not always like you don't care how they're doing at the time because none of that matters. Whatever's happened to them before, none of that matters. What matters is about how you're about to make them feel. Yes. Anything prior to yes. you going and say doesn't fucking matter. Stade so, said the same thing to me. Take out all the questions. Just don't don't give them fucking. And he was just like, go on there and don't apologize. Just be there. Be fucking brave and be confident and make them laugh at your confidence. Like it's fine for them to see me being this arrogant fucking asshole. But that's why you do the fucking cheeky little smirk. That's why occasionally you drop out the character and be like, look, I'm fully aware I'm talking shite. And then you go back and into it just to sort of remind people that, because I'm very confident on stage, sort of always has been, but I like to remind people that I'm still fucking 
terrified. <laughs> and I'm still uh, not necessarily of being on stage because I really love doing it, but just sort of I'm always conscious about, you know, everyone in the audience, you know, it's that standard thing as a comic. You can always see the one person that isn't laughing. Yeah. That's why whenever I do gigs, I'm just like, as much lights on my, I don't, I never want to see my audience. Like, this is awful for me. <laughs> like, you'll notice I'm not looking at any of you at any point because I'll just, even if people are enjoying it, people enjoy things in different ways. You've got the loud, big belly, fucking open laughters, but then you've got people that, I mean, and I'm one of them as well. I'll watch comedy and love it, but I won't laugh all the way through. Yes, yes, if sure. I were to see my own face in a crowd, I would be dying to myself. I would be like, yeah. God, that guy's a fucking prick. Jesus. So this is Daniel. He's a little minx, isn't he? Can you say that about a, a man? He's a male He's a male minx. I've no idea whether a minx is entirely female or even if it's a real animal, come to think of it. But what I mean about Daniel is that he is... Uh, uh, He's a plucky little sprite of a man. And uh, he, he, I mean, he really is a very, very accomplished comic. And uh, he's one of those guys about whom I knew very little socially until only a few years ago. And uh, how can I say this? I sort of, do you remember what I said about Joel Domit? That I kind of, I sort of thought I knew who he was before I really got to know him. I think I experienced much the same thing about Daniel. He is, as you can, uh, to, as you can hear if you uh, see or watch some of his act, um, he's very given to a kind of uh, posturing, a comic posturing that on sight of his uh, of his live work, you would think to yourself, oh, maybe maybe he's a bit arrogant when you meet him because he's kind of got that command of the room. And then you meet him and blow me down if he's not just an incredibly warm and uh, down-to-earth guy who is, uh, as you heard and will continue to hear, he, I mean, he's got some opinions on him, but he's uh, he's just a really, really warm and genuine person, which uh, uh, I am always pleased to see go hand-in-hand hand, uh, with some undeniable comic talent. So more from Daniel in just a sec. I, I hope... I hope I can say that about him. He won't take offence, I'm sure. Look, basically, he uh, he pissed on my bag once at a festival, so uh, I can say what I want about him. Now, coming up, uh, more from Daniel, but uh, uh, time just to remind you about the Soho Theatre shows, which are as follows. Uh, Izzy Sutty, Dobby from Peep Show, uh, also known as, and um, uh, also a terrific uh, uh, musical and sketch and stand-up comic. Uh, the brilliant Izzy Sutty is coming to the Soho Theatre on the 4th of January. Uh, then we have, oh God, I can't remember the order. I can. The 7th of March, it's Dave Gorman, who invented bloody half of what you know about comedy. <laughs> um, he is responsible for some incredible innovation in the field of comedy and Absolutely. When you strip him back down to just him and a mic and his jokes is also a phenomenal comic and the absolutely brilliant and very fast rising. I mean, you know, people talk about rising stars. Romish Ranganathan is going from strength to strength at the minute. And uh, yeah, I mean, he keeps turning up on stuff. He keeps being brilliant. And uh, I suppose I'm now part of that thing. I've always thought that part of how the sort of the, the touch paper process in comedy, how it occurs is that all it takes is one or two people to start going, hey, this is the next person. We should all check out the next person. And then all of the other people in the landscape of comedy, all the reviewers and the critics and the producers and promoters, all of them start turning their heads and going, oh, is, th is this the next person? Is this the next person? And I suppose with Romish, just me saying this just now, I realise that I am now one of those people, aren't I? I'm one of those, those little pointy heads in the landscape that turns around and goes, this guy, this guy, this guy. And uh, I'm certainly happy to report that Romish's case is entirely deserved. He's been brilliant for ages and uh, it's very exciting to see him making waves and making leaps such as, uh, such as appearing on a show as illustrious as the Comedians Comedian podcast live at Soho Theatre. Oh, and Jonathan Ross last year, whatevs. So uh, Romish is on the 4th of April. So uh, those are the things. You can go to SohoTheatre.com and enter the discount code FAF to get 25% off your tickets. And they are starting to shift. If you want to come and see Izzy Sutty, better get in quick. That is selling very, very well. And, of course, uh, I will be taking my own show, An Hour, to Soho Theatre uh, as part of the tour. It's, it's very nearly the end of the tour after that. I think I'm doing uh, uh, Sutton uh, and then the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival. But it's, so it, it's not like the crescendo of the tour, but I've not been to Soho in a long time. And as I've said before on this show, uh, last time I did uh, a weekend at the Soho Theatre was the weekend of the Royal Wedding. I honestly feel, although it was very nice, lots of nice people came to the shows, I don't feel I really got the bite at that... Uh, 
that, that delicious little Dean Street cherry. That isn't a sentence I saw coming out of my mouth. Um, uh, I don't feel that uh, it was the 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 real like I've got happy memories of it, but I'm hoping to have happier memories of this time. So uh, very much looking forward to that. Come along to that if you're in London and if you are anywhere else in those list of places. Uh, and if you live near one of them and would like to be a little ComCom superhero, uh, then send me an email info at comedianscomedian.com with the subject line cavalry. And I will send you some posters which you can put up in your place of work to assist you in corralling all of your friends and colleagues and even people you hate to, to come along and see that show as well and support the tour. I'd really appreciate that. Uh, we are shifting some tickets, but it's always good to sell more so that I can perform to audiences full of people. And I'd really love to see you there. So uh, what else to tell you? There are still some T-shirts remaining. Uh, I mean, every week on the show I go, oh, you better get it quick. We've nearly run out. And then the week later I revealed, no, we have we have absolutely loads left, including some extra larges, which uh, were at the bottom of the box. Uh, and I didn't notice the first time I looked at the box of T-shirts. I couldn't remember ordering them. And so I, I blithely told you they weren't available, but they are. And there are 14 of them left. So get stuck into those. Um, that is probably it. I feel like I should be promoting more stuff. I've been recording loads of episodes. That's great. I've got Mike Wilmot. He's in the can. Hari Kondabolu, Abigail Shaman, and uh, Nathan Caton as well. So those are all to come. We've got a few more left from Edinburgh, including Jenna Friedman, Mark Steele. Uh, we've got, who else? We've got the, the lost Matt Kirshen file. Uh, that is uh, coming out shortly soon. And obviously I'm herring around at the moment trying to pick up loads and loads of episodes such that I can automate the uh, the process of releasing them uh, so that uh, when I am completely submerged in the world of welcoming little tiny mini goldsmith to the world, um, then uh, I can have these hopefully all done and done. I mean, this is my dream, really. And uh, you know me and how good I am at getting round to things. Let's see if that works out. Um, but it would be lovely to have a load of uh, a load of content to keep to be able to keep uh, chucking out the podcast once a week whilst I'm freaking out at being a dad. I went to NCT last weekend. I did the NCT classes, and everyone had told me that they were going to be sort of airy fairy. In fact, the only two, the only the only uh, couple amongst all of my friends that gave an opinion on NCT who said comprehensively positive things about these. What's it called? The National Childbirth Trust. Um, everyone said, uh, "Oh, it's a bit airy fairy, a bit hippieish." And the only two people, the only couple I know who said, "No, it's completely brilliant," are hippies. Uh, they are at the very least carnies. Um, contrary to all of that, we got a very direct lady who told us loads of useful stuff. And I came away having having properly had a moan up on the way in, kind of, oh, God, I, I can't be bothered with this. Um, I came out of it. So we were all so desperate going, we, we all want a support group. We're just so desperate to have people so to, to ring up in the middle of the night when we've got baby shit in our eyebrows. Um, and, and everyone there was like that. And they were all super nice. So that was exciting. Then we had breastfeeding lessons. Oh, and I did a role play of uh, in undergoing a cesarean section. Uh, of course, of course, I volunteered for that uh, because I love to be the centre of attention. And it was quite frightening. And I felt very vulnerable. So I'm, I'm very much thinking about uh, my partner, my my quasi-wife, my wife. <laughs> Maybe not that. Uh, the pre-wife, my Beyonce. Um, and, uh, and really, I'm so, God, it's terrifying. I had, and listen, this is, this is not any of your concern, but I underwent an endoscopy earlier on today. I had uh, a camera shoved down my throat. Oh, oh, uh, it was a sort of, um, a preventative measure. It was like a, is something wrong? Rather than a, oh God, something's wrong. So don't worry. It's, it's, it's not, uh, uh, nothing to panic about, but oh my God, it was invasive and weird and horrible and um and it only lasted two minutes so my respect for my partner has gone right leaps and bounds when i when i think about what it's going to be like to give birth the whole labor thing goes on like the pre-labor can last five days of kind of padding about and baking and having a little kitchen rave i can't wait man i am rambling i'm rambling i'm sorry um We'll get back to Daniel Sloss. This is uh, the, the, Daniel doesn't have to worry about anything like this for a while as he minxes about the place being um, a, a dashing young rake. Um, so uh, I don't know why all this stuff has got into my head. Obviously, it's, uh, it's because it's all I can think about at the moment. My friend Tom, I saw my friend Tom the other day. I'll tell you this last thing. I was so touched by this. He, uh, 
he teared up slightly when I said, do you know the gender of the child? He, he may not have put it like that. And I said, uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a little boy. And he teared up and he said, a goldsmith boy would be a fine thing. I felt so much love for him. I'm really uh, I think uh, I think a goldsmith boy will be a fine thing. <laughs> what am I on about? Do you know what this is? Do you know why I'm being so reflective? It's because I'm about to go on stage at a gig in Grantham. No, not in Grantham. Sorry, Grantham. Uh, Stamford uh, doing a, a, a double up in the North Midlands, Lincolnshire type area. And um, and as a result, I'm finally getting round to recording this while sitting in my car in a car park, looking out at some streetlights in the middle distance in the darkness. And my breath as I record this is misting up my windscreen and... And so I'm uh, thinking about the baby. <laughs> Normal service may or may not be resumed soon. Maybe as soon as I have the baby, the podcast changes and it just it flips and it's just five minutes of interview and 75 minutes of me rambling inconsequentially about life. I think I'll leave that to Jen Kirkman for now. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll see. We'll just have to see. You can't predict it. You can't predict What's going to happen? Come on, Goldsmith, get your head in the game. I've got to go and uh, and uh, smash the... Uh, uh, so what's a smaller version of the roof? Gently gently inflate the canopy uh, of uh, Mama Someone's Voodoo Lounge. So uh, let's go and do that. This is Daniel's. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's funny, actually. I wrote down uh, verbatim something from your show the other, for near the near the end of the show. You said to us, "I've been a comedian for eight years. You've been in an audience for forty minutes. I'll tell you what's fucking funny." Yeah, and that. Do you know what I mean? That's. Uh, I mean, he delivered it way better than that. Yeah, that, no, that, was, that was sort of like that was Exhibit A. I was uh, reading but, that. I mean, I can even that joke. I can that joke. Three. I'll give you the joke because it's a horrible joke. But that that came from the line is. I always react badly whenever my friends get in relationships. I react like they've just been diagnosed with a terminal illness because it's very similar. I'm going to see them less, and when I do, they're probably going to have a different haircut. <laughs> right? Which is which, and that's the thing, the real I like saying is that's one of the jokes where you just, a lot, not a lot, but some people in the audience will just hear cancer, terminal illness, yeah, yeah, yeah. and just go, right, offended, right? I'm like, no, no, that joke isn't a, that joke isn't about cancer victims. That joke is purely about how selfish I am. Like, if you take that joke down on surface level, yeah, it's, it, on surface level, you're you making argued, light of I'm making light yeah. of cancer. But that's not what the joke is. The joke is how pathetic and lonely am I? Yeah, that but- one of the worst thing I am comparing something beautiful to one of the worst things that can happen in yes. the fucking world. That's base level what the joke do you, is do you find and I often wonder about this in, in my own comedy and um, in, in when seeing lots of other people there is this issue of I sometimes think well if you break it down if you break down this particular joke the joke is that obviously I would never say that yeah yeah but is that I worry there's been a couple of times actually in my personal life where I have offended people because I'm so confident in my like offended people socially not even on stage mm. whereas like if I'm kind of in, the, in those moments that you know you're, you're a bit pissed you're at a festival where you're holding court, where yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You're, you're on one and you're flowing and you're just being funny and there's other comics who are being funny. And for me, I find if I'm kind of, I'll say something like deliberately devastating to a mate because the joke is obviously I can't possibly mean it. Yeah. And, and then later on, I'll have found out someone will go, I think they, they might be quite offended about that. And I'll go, but, but how could they be? And then if you actually look at the text, if it's repeated back to me, well, you said this. And then, yeah. It sort of makes me go, oh, fuck, I was relying on their knowledge of my actual character. Now, is that the same in what you're talking about? That no. if you're, is, is it reductive to boil that thing down that you're saying? To boil it down to, well, obviously the joke's on me because to think that you'd need to be an arsehole. Maybe some people in the audience are just thinking, what an arsehole. Yeah, and that's, that, that is what happens when comedy is misinterpreted. Bill Burr, to go back to him, has a spirit where he just goes... 
you say you offended someone, and they were like, you said this and you meant this. And he was like, you don't get to tell me what I meant. If anyone in this world knows what I meant, it's me. Like, if you interpret in a different way, we can argue that I maybe pitched it wrong. But you don't get to tell me that I... I think one of the perfect examples of what you're saying is the, is friendship. Like, I've said, I've said the worst things, the worst things that you could just... Like, if, if you go through my texts, if you fucking go into my connect in my room. Like, if they have been recording everything I've ever said, my career is over in four seconds. Do you have your phone with you now? No, that's fine. Go on, go on. But, like, for me, like, I've got... Uh, so, I've, my best friend, Jean, I will say the most horrifically sexist things to her because she knows me. She knows I'm not a sexist. She knows I'm a fucking big advocate for all this stuff. Same thing with my gay friends. Uh, like Craig Hill's one of my very good friends. Reese Nicholson's one of my very good friends. Reese Nicholson for a year, wouldn't answer me unless I called him faggot, right? It was a little bit of banter that we had where I would just, whenever me and Reese were talking and I would say these horrible things, I would just, every now and again, he'd say something and I would just remind him that he was going to burn in hell for eternity, right? And we'd laugh because it's just between two friends. But, but, but anyone listening in, yes. oh, I'm just a fucking asshole. Sure, but, but so there's your audience, some of whom will be there to see you because they share that friendship yeah. type contract with you and some of whom don't know you and have taken a punt yeah, which is why I reckon those are the ones who've never seen me before are the ones that go, I can't believe you said this. Whereas people that come to my show every year, I will say these horrible, they know I'm kidding. They know I'm doing this. And I sort of think the best way to sort of expose something is to sort of shine the light. I mean, that was the whole, uh, the dapper laughs argument was he was like, dapper laughs was like, oh, I'm a character. And you go, no, no, if you were a character, it would be genius. Mm-hmm. Like if dapper laughs was a character, but it's not. So that's why it's not. That's why it's not but funny. Are you saying that as someone who doesn't share the friendship contract with that particular comedian? If he's saying it was a character, just using the, the mm. same lines of argument that you've just used, is it not similarly valid that he is saying that to his audience? They know it's a, a character, and you believe it isn't. Uh, I would argue that, yeah. But if I don't think that would be true, like if he was if he was getting an intelligent audience turning up, like if. And I just, hey, he does it to nightclubs where the audience are standing up and he points to a woman and goes, she's gagging to be raped. Now, again, I wasn't at the gig. That can be to, this happened. Yeah, sure. That, that was yeah. a do- I mean, that isn't his act. That was like a, a but it was a documented thing that he said. Yeah, but again, again, that's very easy to take in out of context. And he's come out since then and he's, you know, he's still going on. He said it was a character. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in his head. I would, I don't want to be one of the fucking, I mean, I was, I was very much against him. And then I sort of, took a step back and was like, you know what, I'm not, in, I don't know, I'm making bold assumptions on these fucking six-second clips that sure. I've, I've seen. Sure. So I really sort of, I, I stopped uh, doing it. But I, personally, I just, I don't think it was, it might have been a character in his head, but when it got a certain audience who weren't reacting and they weren't laughing like, oh, isn't it funny the way sexist thinks? It was people being like, Yeah! Like, they're not getting the joke. They're taking the jokes literally in the wrong way. So instead of taking a joke that I say, talking about something, they take it literally mean I meant it. His fans are doing... If he's claiming he's doing jokes, his audience aren't really taking them as jokes. Okay. Okay. But then again, I might be wrong. I've never met the guy. I've never seen a stand-up. This comes from a very limited perspective of mine. And I uh, don't want to uh, shit on him. Let's talk about your material. Let's talk about something that I noticed you are particularly you have a particular facility for is finding the kind of the internal uh, paradox in a subject. You're really good at those sort of jokes. I made a note of one. Um, like like when we were talking about the tampons material before, you could boil it down to if tampons are a luxury item, then buy them for your girlfriend's birthday. Yeah, yeah. Which is like a really like you really simplified that very positive argument of yours of tampons sh- should be uh, free. Yep. Because you can't have an argument that they're a luxury item because if they are a luxury item, then buy them for your girlfriend's birthday. Yeah. Say again? <laughs> it's all present material. Yeah. It's all... I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't understand what you said. Okay, that's fine. She's, she, she's seen the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, like, or, the, or your, your attitude, when a bit of material about religion, you talk about the gay bashing wizard in the sky. Yeah. And then you pause, and I... I was thinking if you're, you did a bit of material about if you're thanking God for things, then you have to blame him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bit was, uh, on, like, if you spent all this time on Christmas getting all this stuff ready for your kids, making this day so special, and then your kids get all the stuff and then spend the rest of the day thanking Santa, uh, 
you know, that disappointment that parents feel in that moment, that's exactly how doctors feel whenever you thank God. And <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, let's, let's, just, oh, let's yeah. just isolate that bit for a sec. Because what I'm interested in knowing is how you go about finding those parallels. Are those things that just occur to you or are they things that you chip away through a process of writing? Because that is really succinct, as you were yeah. familiar on. You, that's bang. That's the whole concept. It's fast enough. That's why we're laughing. It's satisfying enough. It's a really good joke. So tell us how you got to specifically that one. Uh, that one, I, I've, me and Kai were on tour, and I, that joke, I think, honestly started out as a tweet where I just did that little line that, like, oh, that's exactly how doctors feel. Okay, and so pr- so pre-tweet. So just, pre- I can't even remember how it just sort of came up. Like, I do, it was me and Kai in the car, so it's just two of us so on just the road. So just for people who Kai don't know Kai Humphreys is uh, one of my best friends. He's my support act on tour, has been for about five years now. Hmm? He, yeah. he is awesome. He's a fucking great comic. Uh, he and that's the reason. A lot of a he's lot your kind of best friend, support act, and minder. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm definitely his minder. That's the thing I was <laughs> like. Our agent, whenever we're on tour, will always go to Kai being like, "Just take care of Daniel." And he's like, "You are aware that I'm the reprobate. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, like, I'm the one at the end." And I've been like, "Kai, we should fucking we got to. You have to drive tomorrow. Let's fucking end this." Yeah, and I, I should say I've meant to mention this on the show before, but the podcast owes a debt of gratitude to Kai Humphreys for steering Tony Law to. Towards the uh, the interview that I did with him a couple of years ago. Oh, really? Because okay. Kai was on his way to that interview oh, I, and saw yeah, Tony walk in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah do go on. Uh, well, I think it was just I was talking about stuff. So I, I obviously I think about religion a lot because every now and again something will come up in the papers and I'll get angry. A lot of my comedy just become from being angry at stuff and then being just angry and shouting about something doesn't help. Like my my father's a very logical man and he can get you around to his way of thinking by just destroying your argument. Uh, and I kind of sort of picked that. I really enjoyed them. I would feel stupid in front of my dad because he would just break down all these stupid things I was saying and get rid of it. So I really picked up on that. And Does, he, he, gets... does he still do that? Does oh, he yeah, watch your this... shows and pick holes in your yeah, my performance parents, logic? my parents come to all my previews uh, because they're two viciously intelligent human beings who love stand-up comedy, like really love have loved it before I was born, loved stand-up comedy. So uh, they Can you imagine that they loved it even before you. I know. <laughs> I, I, I completely understood what you meant. <laughs> I, I could, I could have sworn nothing existed before I was born. Um, Just a void. I came in, and then the world started. Right, guys. Right, guys. You're all simulations. Um, yeah, my yeah. But that's, so I've always got this constant voice in my head of my. I've got my. I've, I've, I've ever got the battle in my head of my mother and my father who are disgustingly in love with each other after 30 years of the two of the most loving supportive parents you'll ever meet in the world uh, but my mother is this very happy wants everyone to be uh, loving and friendly and uh, funny doesn't like upsetting people my father just likes being right he enjoys uh, logic so that sort of I think really helped because if I was just my dad I would just be on stage just shouting opinions and pointing at an audience and I'd be right but I wouldn't be being funny with it but with my mother there as well just wanting this ever lasting need of people to love me i'm like i want to be right but i want you to join me while i'm being let's all be right together guys Come okay on. that's fascinating because that, that makes a lot of sense because your work is very charming and it's also pretty rigorous in terms of its line of argument so um so you were saying about that about that specific joke there was something you were just chatting about with kind of think about it a lot i think something must have happened in the paper to do with religion and i would i would have just gone off on one i'm known for fucking ranting just to friends about stuff and my parents I'll, I've, i will phone my mother up and just if something pisses me i'm gonna shout down the phone at her for 15 it's got nothing to do with her she just she'll just sit at the other end just being like just in her head being like how did I make such an angry fucking child <laughs> like how did I f- raise my mum said to me something I, I don't know how I raised someone so filled with hate um, cracking I, review mum yeah. <laughs> no she loves me like I, I was uh, I was a horrible teenager um, I had some I, on, I fully believe if I didn't get into comedy I, I probably could have ran for UKIP Go on. Oh, I just when I was I was just I was naive. I was young. I was I didn't think anything. I, none of it. I say UKIP. None of it was uh, racist, but it was just very narrow-minded things that a self-centered teenager would think. I thought I knew everything in the world. I thought everyone else was uh, wrong. I got angry about stupid things that didn't matter. And my mom was just like, "Why do you care? Like, why why do you care about these things that don't? I mean, you complain about religion all the time. When has religion ever affected you directly?" The answer yes. is never. But then I'm like, well, that's not the the point. Religion does affect other people. Like, I mean, it's a yeah, get, it does affect other people. But it's interesting that if it doesn't affect you or hasn't affected you directly, 
to what extent are you to what extent is the basis of your your early comedy sort of you throwing a tantrum do you know what i mean given that like given that you were a teenage comedian mm. and a very successful one um to what extent is was that comedy born of teenagerness? That whole kind of oh. what are you, I'm rebelling against anything you've got kind of thing. Absolutely, that was it. Was just uh, I mean, it wasn't even rebellion. Like I used to have a bit in my routine about uh, my parents. I, I shouldn't be a comedian because I have two loving parents, like who really support. Like my dad once drove uh, me and Mark Nelson, another comic, two hundred miles down to Nottingham so we could both do a five-minute spot at Glee and then drove us up back home that night and then went to work at nine in the morning. That's a round of applause for like uh, Daniel's dad. Good work, Dad. I mean, other comics have parents that are, you know, drug addicts, abusive, you know, dead. They've got all these issues. My parents are the most disgustingly, offensively supportive people in the world. <laughs> so, like, the fact that they made... Uh, me is is sort of I, I didn't have anything to rebel against. My parents were accepting of everything I ever did, so I don't. I honestly don't understand where uh, where the rebellion comes from. I think do, you, it, do you have any theories? You say you don't understand it, but that is that's a really interesting question at the heart of you. Yeah, what are you angry about? I think I'm just. Uh, I am fully aware of uh, how lucky I am. Right? People can fucking say all the time, "Well, you know, you're a hard worker. You're a good comic." I put very little of my success of my career down to myself. Uh, it's a mixture of uh, my parents, my friends, my agent, the support of other comics, the fact that I was uh, young and arguably attractive, so I was given breaks on TV <laughs> that I think other comics would have been more deserving of, but I was given it because I was a box ticker. And, I, and I, 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 I mean, it's only in the past year that I've ever felt comfortable in green rooms because before I did feel like a fucking imposter. So that's when I really sort of changed my comedy. That's when you want to make the difference from porridge to talking about something was I felt bad just be, just doing nothing with it. I, I wanted to feel comfortable in green rooms. I, want, I was sick of being called a teenage comic and a young comic. I'm not a young comic. I'm a comic that happens to be young. I'm a comic first. That's what was always important. I want to be a fucking comedian. And, and that must be difficult because the, the, the branding decisions that, are, that you've made or have been made on your behalf is like in the, in the programme this year, you're still half, half man, man, half Xbox. A line my mother came up with. Yeah. Is yeah, that beginning first... to... Are you keen to shed that now or are you aware that you still have to... Like, in, away from the green room environment, you still need to pitch yourself as the comedy teenager no I mean I'm still I'm still uh, young I don't talk about uh, being young any uh, more because it's not I've, I mean I've done all my young material you want to, that was a layer that I've stripped off I've, I don't need to talk about being young anymore um, I think just uh, yeah as I just sort of went on with comedy I, I, I wanted respect of older comics and not just because I didn't want to feel left out but because these were comics I liked these were comics I found funny and I you know when I did uh, when I did uh, Conan one of the times uh, one of the, the day after the guy booking it was like oh Bill Burr's on tomorrow do you want to come in and watch him I'm like fucking I'm straight in there so I get in the next day and he's like do you want me to introduce you to Bill I'm like if you introduce me to Bill Burr I'm going to punch you in the fucking mouth because I don't want to be introduced to him as like oh this is Daniel he's also a comedian if I meet him I want it to be where we're on the same fucking I, I meet him because we're sharing a bill I meet him in a sense where he meets me as a comic not as a fucking fan yeah. just I'm going to clip this bit out and email it to him yeah okay yeah. <laughs> I mean I can do it he follows me on Twitter so uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, respect was always something I really. Um... But wait, I, I, I get it. But what are your? It's a terrible thing to say. I get it. Yeah, everything you think, yeah. I get it. I want to stay with the idea of of the anger. Mm. You wanted respect from green rooms, understood? Yes, yeah, so I wanted to do comedy that th- comics liked. I mean, it's that to me is a big thing that I've that's really boosted me in the past couple of years. Is over the past more and more comics have been coming to my show, and that's when I'm like now I'm on to fucking something because yes. audiences are fucking great and those are the people that you're there to laugh but they do not understand comedy unless there's diehard comedy fans obviously but you know the, sums, the ones that go see two, three shows a festival two, three shows a year one show a year first show ever they don't know as much about comedy so they can say oh it's great and you're like yeah but of course you, you've not seen all the stuff I've seen it's very easy to be like this is the best pizza I've ever tasted 
Where have you had pizza before? Never in my life. Like, of course, it's the, you've never had it before. Whereas that's why you go to experts. Now, I don't consider uh, reviewers experts. I consider people, you know, agents, managers, uh, fucking sound techs at gigs. Yeah. Our opinions I rate higher than a lot of people. I would rate uh, anyone who's done sound at the Glee, Tim, for years and years, way more than I would ever rate the opinion of any reviewer ever. Because that's a man who's watched thousands of hours of comedy yes. to every single type of audience. And not just jewelry festivals. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And not just to get free tickets to shows and to not just try and get a portfolio to prove that they're able to critique things. And for the rest of the year, he's still involved in comedy. 90% of critics during the Fringe are not comedy critics for the rest of the year. Do you let critics into your shows? Uh, no, but there was a bit of a thing. People were like, oh, Sloss banned reviewers from his show. I didn't. I stopped making tickets free and then none of them showed up. Like, if you ever need to know the integrity of com- uh, comedy critics, that's it. Okay. Um, <laughs> a one round of applause. Good. There. Very good. Um, From Kate Copstick. That's weird. It's weird that she came oh, to the... Th- there she is, yeah. Um, good. Let's, before we just move on to the, the next, I've got lots of other stuff to ask you, and time is limited. But Anger. Anger. Uh, I, I think it... I don't know where the inner uh, anger uh, comes like the, from. the pre... The stuff your mum's talking about. You were such an angry kid. Why are you such an angry kid? I don't get it, says your mum. Yeah. You- I, I think it was... I, I was yeah, so I, I've always been... I've been very aware. I've always felt like an imposter. I want to sort of uh, fit in. But also, I've been very... I'm white, middle class and male. Like, life's been a fucking breeze. Like, I've, just ne- I've never suffered any sort of real prejudice or any sort of... Th- I've never had any of that. And uh, I... It doesn't just, mean... Yeah, okay, you've checked be, your privilege. Yeah, yeah, but just... I think it's... Because I, I, just because I've never suffered injustice doesn't mean injustice still doesn't fuck me off. To such a fucking level. Any form of, I've always been against injustice. So one of the things that to this day still destroys me is I cannot handle homeless people. Like, and not in it, but just it, whenever I, it destroys me because when, normally I think when parents and kids see a homeless person, the kid goes, What's that? And they're like, Oh, he's a drug addict or he's an alcoholic. I remember the first time I saw a homeless person, I went, What was that? And my mom was just like, He's just, things clearly went wrong in his life. Some bad stuff we'll never know, but now he's just there. And I've just been like, That's unfair. And she was like, Yep, like things are unfair, and growing up in the things where I was, nothing was ever unfair to me, so I kind of felt bad. That Did I, you feel guilty? Yeah, like I felt absolutely, and I still guilt. do okay. feel fucking guilty about. Uh, I mean, not necessarily guilty because it's a fucking breeze, guys. Uh, <laughs> but just, I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I really want everyone to be as sort of happy as I am, and if they're not, I'm like, well, let's fucking do it together, like. I, yeah, I want people to share the same experiences that I share, and if they're not, I want them to let them like, you know, I'm on your side or doing ever. I mean, that might sound wanky and shite box, but I don't know if okay. that makes any no, sense. No, 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 it does, it does, absolutely. And it seems to me that that anger is is effectively rooted in a kind of vulnerability. Like, you, oh, you're absolutely. very sensitive, you're very empathic, mm. would you say? You sort of see a homeless person. I mean, you're, I'm, and I, it's very difficult for me not to place it in the context of your age again. I'm 14 years older than you, and I remember in my early 20s really struggling with that issue and really like it, like the crushing unfairness of the world. How am I allowed to be happy? And I suppose rather than get angry about it, I kind of got really sad about it. And it's it's kind of interesting to... Well, I think the thing is I don't like sadness. I don't react. I mean, I'm so fucking... I only let myself cry once a year. Like, I don't like that side of my emotions. So maybe, maybe it was any time I felt sadness, uh, I turned it into anger because I could, I could, I could harness anger. Like, I think, uh, so the end of my show this year is about I had a sister that passed away when I was nine and she was seven. And I remember before that I was, I wasn't religious, but I was religious because I'd been raised religious. Dad had always been an atheist. But uh, when my sister died, uh, I just remember being at a fucking church service and just... People being like, oh, you know, she's up with the Lord now. I'm just sitting there going, that guy's a fucking cunt. Like, there was no need to, like, uh, and then just suddenly going, there's no way any of that, but I'm still being told by fucking uh, adults and all the sadness that was there and all the sadness and other stuff, instead of just turning it into sadness, which I may wrongly interpret as weak. And you can't, you can't you, I mean, you can't really harness sadness, or at least I can't harness sadness into something useful. 
but I can harness anger into something that fills me with passion and passion to talk about stuff. I mean, I don't know if that is the case. It's literally the first time I've ever thought about it. <laughs> but okay. I think maybe I, uh, I've always been comfortable with anger because that's something that I got up with I was angry. But if I'm sad, I just fucking sit down and I go too into my own head. Thank you. Thank you. That's a really good answer. Um, was it? I feel like I just talked shit. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of both. Okay, no, I'm joking. Good. It was fun. No, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I want to talk to you more about... We've got very limited... Oh, Christ, we've got almost no time. Sorry, I've, uh, I was enjoying that and I have not kept a correct eye on the clock. Um, let me ask uh, one more question. If we've probably got time for one audience question. If anyone has any burning desires, I will ask one quickly first. Um, it's so funny trying to make notes, trying to read my notes that I made during your show. Um, the... Given that you are a younger comic, do you, and probably a lot of, you know, maybe something like 50, 60, 70% of the comedy circuit would look, you know, in a green room would kind of go, oh, this, this young guy. There must presumably, even at the tender age of 24, are you looking around going, oh, there are some younger comics creeping up on me? Uh, no, not not uh, not creeping up. Like, <laughs> I mean, I wish that was my sort of thing. It's, fair. it's way cuntier than that. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was a Gilded Balloon uh, loft bar the other day, like, one in the morning. And uh, the, so you think your funny finals, oh, sorry, semi-finals were on. And there was this group of comics at a table, and they were like, oh, and Elliot Steele, one of my friends, just went, oh, these guys were all in the So You Think You're Funny. But I'm like, how old are you? And they're like, oh, you know, 21, 19, whatever. And I just did, and I was like, oh, this is the first time I've ever been older than all of the comics. I'm yeah. going to be as condescending to you guys <laughs> as my entire career has been up until this. <laughs> so I, started, I sat down with them and went, the thing to remember, kids, it's none of this matters. Blah, blah, blah. And I just started spouting as if I knew everything in the world. I yeah. love, I, uh, uh, yeah, seeing the young comics is, uh, the thing I always say is, I love, I'm like, just fucking keep going. It's why I keep saying to anyone that wants to do comedy is the one thing I constantly hear from other comics, older comics, amazing comics, is one of the big regrets that keeps coming up is I wish I started younger. And that's one thing I am so fucking glad I did start at 16, 17. Because, of the, you know, I, I, I didn't want to do my first friend show. I did it when I was 18. My agent talked me into it. She was like, just get it done. And, and it was shit. It wasn't a great show. Uh, but you know who remembers it? Fucking no one. Nobody remi- Nobody was there. Yeah, and since well, then, you mean that in a good way? No, I mean, like, no, no, I mean it, I, no, I mean it in a great and... way. I got that fucking hour. Nobody remembers it. Second hour, no one remembers. Third hour, no one remembers. But now I'm 24, and this is my seventh hour show at the fucking festival. Yeah. And uh, I'm just like... And, and, and I'm, I'm so thankful that my agent forced me into that move and that I did start young. So just fucking do it, because you've got to remember, none of it's going to matter when you... If you just keep... If, unless you die... And when that's the only memory left of you, in which case, well, fuck it, you're dead, who cares? But if you keep going, nobody's going to remember the old stuff. In fact, it's going to turn into a bit where, I, I mean, I hope when I'm 35, I can look at my old stand-up and laugh yes. at it. But I can't do it now because it's still too close. Yes, to okay, okay. Um, I have one final question, then we must get out because we're, uh, we're, we're in danger of overrunning. I just wanted to ask about strategy. Because your agent, Malena, a very smart lady. Yes. And uh, I've got a lot of respect for her. She's, she's great. Um, she, oh, well, I don't know how much of it is her, how much of it is your decisions. I'm just interested in just getting a, a quick look at the plan. There's obviously been Edinburgh Hour, another Edinburgh Hour, bigger room, bigger room, biting off more than you can chew in terms of the size of the rooms. Uh, well, the room hasn't changed in four, four years now. So I've been, in okay. the, I've been in the same room for four years now and I'm happy to stay there for the rest of it. If I do Edinburgh every year, I'm never, I really never want to leave the ICC or that room. I love okay. it. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice size. It's, it's pretty posh. It's pretty Enormous p- dressing room. Yeah, as I saw. you can correct. properly run around that bathroom. And uh, the audit, uh, uh, and the the staff there really give a fuck. They yep. really, really give a fuck. So, what sorts of things then? Finally, are you? Um, as you mentioned, you've done Conan. Yeah. You've done, you started to break into American TV. Yeah. You've done a fair bit of TV over here. What sorts of things do you turn down, and why? Uh, okay, so there's. Uh, when I was 18, I got a lot of breaks. I uh, did like uh, eight or ten cats and Michael McIntyre's Roadshow and the Rob Brydon Show. I got all these sort of stand-up things, which I'm internally uh, grateful for because they got me out there. They got me known and uh, and they got me sort of big enough uh, that I, you know, could tour. And then I got like a, uh, I, I got very lucky. I got a DVD deal uh, when I was 21 that allowed me to put a down payment on a house. And and when I got that house and I've lived there since. 
my main focus has just been to put every fucking penny I earn uh, into the house so I can pay off as quickly as possible because that way if comedy goes wrong, I'll never be homeless. Uh, but, because, but because of that thing, I, and, and this is purely, uh, uh, this is a very privileged thing, because I got that opportunity, I had security, so I managed to take a step back and make decisions that I wanted to make. I wasn't doing things. I mean, I got offered, like, Splash, the fucking diving show. Yeah. I got offered all those sort of weird... And there's some panel shows which are great, but I just... I don't do well on panel shows. Uh, I'm just not that type of comic. I'm a, I just talk shit. It's not gag, gag, gag. Uh, and I see them, and, and, you know, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be famous for the sake of being uh, famous, so I took a step back. And, my, I mean, that's the amazing thing about my agent, is I just said to her... I went, I don't want to do that. And there was no push. There was no this. She just went, right, what do you want? I was like, look, I just want to be one of the best stand-ups in the world. That's what I want to work towards. And she went, right. And and no, and ever since then, all her thing has been stand-up opportunities. Any TV I turn down isn't because I don't like, the, I don't respect the TV show, and it's not because I don't respect the comics on the show, but it's just because I personally don't want to be known for that. I want it. I don't want to be famous for the sake of being famous i would rather less people knew me for being good than more people knew me just for the fuck for fucking knowing me i think uh f- fame should be a byproduct of being excellent at what you do not just i can do it a bit um so i really I, and i was lucky enough to make these fucking decisions uh and i'm really glad i did thank you very much ladies and gentlemen all i will say finally is that at latitude festival this year daniel urinated on my rucksack didn't happen ladies it's and a gentlemen, lie. daniel sloss give it up for daniel sloss thank you, thank you so much thanks man god i'm sorry about that thing earlier on uh dear listener uh, I, uh, I've, I've gone a bit peculiar. And as you'll know, if you think about this, I'm recording this immediately after I went peculiar. So I'm going to get out of here quick before I, before I increase the peculiarity. Basically, I'm going all soupy because I'm having a baby. That's allowed, isn't it? That's allowed. But let's stop being self-indulgent. Right. That was Daniel Sloss. Check him out online. Uh, check out his stuff. Go and see him live. Obviously. Lovely boy. Go and see Kai Humphreys as well, without whom Daniel Sloss would be nothing. <laughs> um, and he, he really did urinate on my bag. So uh, come and see the tour. Hang around after the tour, after we play the uh, the final track at the end of the show. And you can do a little off the record Q&A with me. Buy a T-shirt watch a thing <laughs> download stuff new youtube channel coming soon uh i've got, got some good content for that and uh, remember all the details for the tour at comedianscomedian.com and uh, and get yourself some tickets for izzy sutty they're going fast i'll speak to you soon i'm still here in my car park thinking about my life bye for now mm-hmm.